When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite team. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chad. We got the Oilers and the Avalanche tomorrow on 6.30, Chad. Face-off show is at 6, game is at 7.30, and then the Oilers close out the regular season on Thursday with a home game against the San Jose Sharks. The Oilers will start the playoffs at home. Yes, we're all eagerly awaiting the uh, playoff schedule, but still a few days until we're going to get that. One guy who's been... The voice of the postseason for a long, long time on television here in Canada is Chris Cuthbert. Probably going to have him calling some Oilers games along the way, especially if they go deep into the postseason. And, of course, uh, he called a very famous Oilers goal last year in the playoffs. from, of course, last year's Battle of Alberta, and my guest is none other than the legend himself, Chris Cuthbert. Chris, you're on with Reed. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, Reed. Good to be with you, and looking forward to tomorrow night for sure. Yes, uh, I had to pull the uh, a more call of uh, recent vintage out of... <laughs> Didn't have to go deep in the archives uh, to get, get that one. What do, you, what do you remember about that moment, the McDavid overtime winner in Calgary? Well, the, you know, I, I think we, we thought that series might go deeper. It was, uh, um, there were some crazy games in that series, and uh, it, it was fitting that uh, that uh, 97 was the guy to finish it off. And, uh, and uh, I think there was a time when I thought, uh, you know, that goal would probably come in. In, in game six on home ice, I, w- I was surprised it, it was as quick a series as it was, but uh, the Oilers were the better team, and uh, I think they're a better team right now than they were then and when they went to the conference final a year ago. When you have a moment like that, I, I mean, I know I sure a lot is going through your mind, and you, and you and I talked, you came and saw me in Studio 99 during that series last year and did a pregame hit with me, which was fun. How, what's the do you sort of like just know when you have to stop talking you've done TVs for so long and let the pictures tell the story or do you have to try to treat every moment uh, differently depending on how it played out I'm just wondering what's going through your mind when you call a big goal like that well I, I do think you, you you have to sense the moment and, 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 and give it space sometimes uh, the excitement level tumbles over and, and you, you maybe talk more than you should uh, but uh, you know it's funny you ask me that because uh, it's easier when the when the goal scored at home uh, because the eruption usually is uh, so overpowering that uh, you know you follow that cue pretty easily. But uh, but even on the road, that goal. 
will give you a similar reaction. I think even even if it's done the uh, the home crowd, uh, there was there was enough Oiler uh, sentiment in the building that uh, you, you know you knew you'd play off of it. And, and it's probably a good thing to talk about since uh, so many of the Connor McDavid games in Toronto have uh, have been without any crowd. I guess, and I think that's one of the reasons people are excited about the game tomorrow. And um, and, and and you know, I, I think that um, we learned a lot about how much we missed the crowd when we did go through all the the bubble and, and the COVID season, and uh, how frustrating that was because the uh, uh, the crowd is is just an, an essential third of the game. You know, you've got the, the two teams and the crowd, and it uh, uh, and you need all three parts to really have the magic that uh, that you want out of a game like tomorrow. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up, and I hope you don't mind a little bit of behind the scenes talks, but 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 I, but I like it, and you know, John Shannon gives us stories like that sometimes too. But that it's it's funny because you've been kind enough to come on my show several times over the years, but the most I ever saw you in person was during that 56-game season because they put us all in the same spot. And you, you'd often walk by me while I was doing the face-off show, give me a little wave. You know, when you're, you're here in Edmonton, we're often on different levels so we don't get to see each other. I'm wondering, though, did you ever get used to calling it without fans? And when you would have your production meetings with your you know producers and stuff, did, did, you, did you talk about, okay, we got to think about how we're presenting this because it's so much it's so different without the noise and the people in the building well i i did worry a lot about that when we when we first started uh uh i mean my first call on on sportsnet was in the bubble in edmonton and and i really did spend a lot of time thinking you know am i going to be able to carry the same level of excitement um and i guess i guess my passion for the game was able to kind of kickstart that and and you know I, I, there were a couple of mile posts that i remember that we kind of got through that and i think you get used to it a little bit even though you should never get used to it uh, i remember the next season um we had done two or three games and it was the same as the bubble and you know it was kind of been there done that we're getting used to it and then we went into montreal and it was toronto montreal at the bell center and the bell center is still my favorite building for atmosphere uh i guess since the forum um closed and I think it was a reminder to, I know Craig Simpson and I both reflected almost immediately, like in, the, in our first commercial break, that, man, this is not the same. And it's not the same in an empty building as it was uh, when Calgary was in Edmonton or Colorado in the conference final. It's it's just not the same. And, and the other milepost was we, we ended up having to do a number of games off off a tube in a, in a studio, and, and that's... That's even worse. So uh, we've been through it all in the last few years, and I'm I can't wait. To, uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm thankful that we're back to normal. You know, I'm glad you told that story because, as you know, I don't talk during the game. I'm on during the intermissions and before and after. But I found during the game when the game was going on. 
I, I didn't notice anything. It's like, okay, I'm watching a hockey game. I'm paying attention. Who's doing what? Taking whatever I notice I need to take. But when a goal was scored or there was a fight or a scrum, that's that's what I really missed the crowd because it's like, what? Just say hey, something's going on. Oh, yeah, there's nobody here. And, like, there'd be a scrum and you could actually hear the players yelling at each other, which usually you can't, right? Because all the fans are yelling at them. Yeah, and, you know, I think that, you know, we, we like to hear that communication during a game, but it, it kind of rang hollow, um, pardon the pun, but it did ring hollow in an empty building. It, it just didn't seem to be enough. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, do, I do like to hear that stuff from the ice, but uh, unless it's enhanced by, by the crowd around it, it's, it's just, it just doesn't feel right. All right. Always a joy to catch up with Chris Cuthbert. We will stick with the play-by-play theme, and we have some memories of calling a goalie fight in the minors. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins is brought to you by James H. Brown and Associates, Alberta's precedent-setting injury lawyers. One guy I've really enjoyed getting to know a little bit over the last couple of years is Everett Fitzhugh. He's the play-by-play voice for the Seattle Crack. I mean, you've heard him on the show a few times. Really interesting guy and uh, really worked his way up to the NHL. Was in the ECHL for a few seasons. And uh, we had him on Inside Sports and uh, he reflected on calling a goalie fight in the ECHL. As now Adam Hauser. they're going to go at center. Hauser takes off the gloves. Bay steps in with him. Hauser backs out of the red line, north of that Cyclone logo. They grab each other, and then Hauser just stumbles down. Looks like Hauser just lost an edge in that fight. Okay, so we're going to bring Everett Fritz Hugh out of the show. He's the play-by-play voice for the Kraken. Hi, Everett. <laughs> What's up, man? How are you doing? <laughs> okay, I, well, I'm doing great. Now, what What is that? You got what? What is that? What's the the whole circumstance there? <laughs> All right. So this was back when I was in the ECHL with Cincinnati, uh, and Michael Hauser, uh, one of our goalies, Adam Vay for the Quad City Mallards, and they fought. Uh, uh, at center ice, uh, it's relevant because Oiler prospect Ryan Fancy fought for the Fort Wayne Comets a couple nights ago, and uh, so Hauser, that fight was all over all over the sports world, Barstool and Chicklets, you name it. This was probably I want to say maybe 17, 17, 18, something like that. Um, and Hauser got one punched, and and they just rocked him. And I can say that because me and Hauser are actually pretty tight. Uh, so he, he, he'll, he'll agree with everything I'm about to say. So the angle, the view of the press box, I couldn't see the punch that they threw because it wasn't a haymaker. It was just a little jab that he caught him with. So Vay's back is to me right at the red line. And then all of a sudden, I just see Hauser fall down. The, the, the cyclone goalie fall down. So I'm like, oh, they, they, they step in, they grab, and then, and then Hauser, he fell to the ground. Well, then you watch the the replay of the fight, and you see the alternative angle of that fight, and and they caught him with an unsuspecting.
expecting punch right to the jaw, knocked him out one punch cold. And uh, my 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 ugly mug was all over bar stool and chiclets for a couple of days. Oh, this broadcaster doesn't know what he's talking about. What do you mean? He got one punch? Yada yada yada. I didn't see it. And then to make matters worse, the uh, I saw uh, Michael Hauser a couple of days later, and, and I said, "Hey, man, uh, you, you good? Everything all right?" And then he tells me that Adam Vay apparently was an MMA fighter. I think he was from somewhere uh, in Eastern Eastern Europe, Bulgaria, something like that. He's a pro Bellator MMA fighter. He actually tried to get a um, uh, stipulation in his contract that would allow him to fight on the side. I guess he was a nationally ranked pro fighter from where he came from. A couple of NHL teams took a look at him, but they wouldn't sign him because he wanted to be able to participate in MMA fights on the side. Obviously, I'm sure a lot of NHL teams wouldn't want you to do that. So um, then I looked at him and I said, so you probably should have read the game notes there, huh? And he goes, yeah, probably should have read the game notes there. And and that was it. So that that's, that's the story of my one lone goalie fight in my broadcasting career. Well, I mean, look, I, I totally feel for you because... You, I mean, sometimes you don't. You're right. You don't always see everything, right? But you got to call yeah. it or, or react to it as quickly as you can. I thought I thought it was sounded great, and then yeah, you you, you called what you thought you saw at the time. It was a like, it was a very quick fight, and obviously, yeah. you know, we texted this afternoon. And I said, hey, can you? We got a story you could tell. So I I wasn't sure if you were sending me like a quick fight or some crazy yeah. like forty five. Oh, no. No, it was quick, but that was my that was my that was my story. That was my five minutes of fame story. And again, I'm in the ECHL. I'm in Double A hockey, right? So there are no replay monitors. I don't have a color guide next to me. You know, I, I don't have all these different angles. I, I have what I saw. And again, like I said, the, the the Quad City goalie, his back was to me, and and it wasn't until after the game when I walked into my coach's office and he goes, "Buddy, what the heck were you watching?" <laughs> well, hey, uh, if if, I, if we if I started listing all the things I've gotten wrong live, then we'd be here a long time. So don't don't worry oh, yeah. about that. But thanks for sharing the story, and I, and I know you're a uh, you're, you're you're a humble guy. So you 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 brought up one where you're not the hero of the story necessarily. Oh yeah. Now, now, now we should clarify. A lot of people still call it the East Coast Hockey League. It's not that. Yeah. Anymore, right it's just the ECHL but it has yeah. that reputation like were there some wild I mean clearly fighting is I mean quite frankly I think it's in the pro- slow process of being phased out of hockey yeah. but did, did you ever have like line brawls people come off the bench what's the biggest thing that happened Oh, yeah. I mean, the ECHL, and, and listen, I'm going to give, and I'm still very close with a lot of folks in different teams, a lot of folks in, in, in the front office, in the league office in the U.S., in the ECHL, rather. You know, they, they have really done a, a good job over these last, I want to say, seven to ten years of turning the ECHL into a legitimate, bona fide NHL prospect league. I mean, the ECHL had this reputation – 
Um, you would go to a bar uh, and a hockey game would break out. You go to a fight and a hockey game would break out. That was what the ECHL was 20, 25 years ago. Um, I want to say the, the, the league is closing in on 800 ECHL alums who have made it to the NHL, and I'm willing to bet that at least half of them have been within the last 10 to 12 years. So this league is slowly becoming you know, more of that legitimate uh, affiliated league. But, I mean, listen, you're still going into Fort Wayne, Indiana, Wheeling, West Virginia. You're going into some of these smaller blue-collar towns. And, and hey, listen, you know, it's like junior hockey in the Western League, right? You go to some of these Western League towns, and, you know, they, a lot of a lot of great battles, great fights, great moments. So, um, you know, it, I, I've seen quite a bit. I, I think that's probably up there in terms of, of games that I've called, uh, but I, I, I have seen a game that featured 160 penalty minutes. Um, that was that was fun. Um, oh, Lord, let's see. There, I've seen guys go after fans, uh, secondhand, obviously, you know, through other, other guys that I know. So I, I've seen a bit, but that league, I will say, is, is, is shedding that old-school moniker of of slap shot type of hockey. That is Everett Fitzhugh of the Seattle Kraken. Play by play for the Seattle Kraken. And yes, he is going to be calling playoff games this spring. It's the best of inside sports on 630 Chet. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins is brought to you by James H. Brown and Associates, Alberta injury lawyers. Go to jameshbrown.com. Men's World Curling Championship final yesterday. Didn't go great for Canadian skip Brad Gushu. Scotland with the big 9-3 victory to take the gold at Men's World. Of course, Gushu won the Briar last month, Edmonton's Brendan Botcher was eliminated in the semifinal. Had a chance to win that game, but came up short on a uh, shot, very final shot of the game on a draw. I was talking to curler David Nedwin about that. Well, I, th- I think it was two things. One is that he had to basically cover the button. I mean, Matt Dunstone had made just a, a ridiculously great shot. But the other thing to it is it's not just like, hey, Dunstone, cover the button. Now you have to. It was that there was a there was a guard uh, when Mark Kennedy, I think, was was peeling the guards. He made a great shot, but his shooter kind of stayed over on the side where Botcher had to draw that way. So that rock, even though it wasn't necessarily in the path of, of where he needed to go to hit the button, it would have been right on the edge of it. So it's it's in your mind. It's there, and it's super hard to block out that you might be rubbing on that guard. If that guard's not there, I I would guess that you know Brendan makes that shot maybe seven or eight times out of ten. But with that guard there, I think it's more like five out of ten. Like, it, it was hard. It was really hard with that rock there. I want to ask you a couple of things, because you've been there. You've been in the hack for thousands of big shots, including ones that, you know, were to, to win Briars or at the Worlds or things like that. Um, first of all, when you're preparing to make that shot, I, I know athletes like to say, well, I've made it a, a million times, but, I mean, can you... In your mind, can you make it feel the same as Tuesday night at the Otwell? You know what I mean? Like, what's it like sitting there? 
You try to. I mean, you definitely try to. There's no question. I mean, we use everything from heart rate monitors to try and figure out how you slow your heart down to just that all that mental preparation that goes into it. And, you know, we've seen these top skips make those shots over and over again, but you're never going to make every one of them. And that's just, you know, that's just the life of a curler of a skip who's got to throw that last rock. But yeah, I mean, uh, there's no question you're sitting there in the hack and, and you are absolutely nervous. You need to find a way, whether it's when you're going down the ice to kind of zone it out, focus in on what you need to do. That's why you have routines. You know, the front end knows exactly what to say and how to say it. Everybody has, you know, is working as a, as a complete team unit to make sure that when, you know, the, the skip is in the hack there, that this is just another shot, um, that nothing's different, right? But, but it's not. I mean, you know it's not. And, um, and, and it's, a, it's a real talent to be able to try and block that out and, and just make those shots at that time. Because like you said, you, you go down to the local curling club and they'll make that shot every time. But um, maybe not that one because it was very difficult. But, you know, drawing the forefoot. But it's, it's, it's definitely different when you've got, you know, 10,000 people in the building and a Briar championship on the line and all those things that go with it. So uh, let me ask you this from your perspective, and I, and I hate to do this, David, but I've, I've said this before. I get better stories when I ask about a negative experience than a positive one for, for athletes looking back. But I, I, and without talking to Botch, and I'm sure we'll get him on the show here, I assume he knew upon release maybe that didn't have the gas to get there. And, yeah. and I assume you've been there where you're like, oh, crap. That's, oh, yeah. What, yeah what, what's going through your mind? Yeah, the minute he let that go, he knew. Like, yeah, I'm sure it was just like, guys, please, please go, go, go. Like, he's just in his mind praying that maybe he's wrong and that they can get it there. And he's got, you know, two of the best sweepers in the world, um, you know, pushing the brooms and, and being able to do everything they can with that rock. And they're incredible. So when you do come up, you know, whatever, eight or 10 feet short, those sweepers probably carried it eight or 10 feet. Like, so, you know, he was, he was a lot shorter than even a look when he's got those two guys in the broom. So he knew right away. There's, there's no question about that. And I, and I've been there. I mean, our, our first worlds we went to, and like you said, you know, the one thing I'll say is that all these players that we watch that have won so much, they've also lost a lot like they've lost briar finals and worlds and everything you can imagine in order to win these i mean gushu included right um but our first worlds that we went to in 2001 uh it was it was a big controversial last game because they pulled a whole bunch of randy's rocks and uh the canadian officials for hogline violations uh it was just they didn't have electronic candles then uh, they had uh, they had just one person sitting on the hog line who would like determine if you were over the hog line, and we were playing. Th- this is getting way down a rabbit hole, but it's an entertaining story. Um, we were playing ag- against Switzerland in the semifinals in Switzerland, and they ended up having one hog line official because usually you have two. They have to confirm. They only put one out there, and it was it was an older female uh, Swiss lady, female, nothing to do, of course. But I just remember her watching right, and uh, only one. And she pulled three of Randy's rocks and everything was going crazy. And we played an absolutely incredible game. Like despite kind of those, those challenges we had in the game, we played an unbelievable game. I had a wide open hit to win the game. If as long as I stick in the rings. So semifinals of our first worlds and I rolled out and they had a little biter in the 12th one. And we got, we lost our worlds on that. So I had a way easier shot than, uh, than Brendan did there. That's for sure. And, and I rolled out and that was the end of our first worlds. So you look back at those and they're, they're tough. I mean, we went through a tough summer there. Um, and we committed to getting back the, the next year and, and, uh, and we did, 
And of course, we ended up, you know, winning a few worlds after that. And the game changed that they went to electronic handles after that. So that was kind of the catalyst going, this can't happen again. And so the game changed because of that. But it was, uh, yeah, it was quite a story, that one. And like I said, if, you know, maybe had we not gone to some other worlds after that, I would have probably told the story with, um, you know, less enthusiasm, but uh, we're fortunate enough to get, to get into a few more. So, David Nedwin joining us today on Inside Sports. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that that story, and I think I vaguely remember that uh, that shot for sure. Plus, tons that you made along the way too. Um, okay, you, you might you might bristle at this question because you'll have a different perspective because you were in the competitions, and, and, as, and as we know, you're very decorated yourself. It's widely um, discussed if people want to sit down with a with a pint or some nachos and talk about the greatest curler of all time. As I'm sure you know, Kevin Martin's name comes up a lot. Other people's as well. Is is how how much is Gushu in that conversation now with five out of seven? And I realize you may be like, "Come on, Reed," but I think I got to ask you because Gushu has done so much over the last decade or so here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's a great question, and I think it's one that you're going to have different perspectives on it based on what you value, whether you value the Olympics or you value the World Championships or Grand Slams or everything that's combined. And uh, I mean, if it's if it's just kind of the credentials of somebody winning everything they've won, I I think Gushu's got to be number one I, in my mind after winning that. I think he's got to be number one. Now he might put a little exclamation mark on that by going and winning the worlds now, right? Because um, right now Nick Adeen is is the the you know he would have to be number one globally as as the maybe the greatest curling team. And I, I hate to say curler because Nick Adeen did it with his team. Brad Gushu's done it with uh, now he's of course got one new player on his team um, with with Ryan Harden, but he's done it with Mark Nichols and Jeff Walker forever. So I, I was I was making the argument that Mark Nichols might be maybe the, the, the greatest player of all time the other day just because he also went on one with Jeff Stoughton. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. you know so I hate to say it's just a skip. I'd rather say the team and I would say that uh, the Brad Gushu team is in my mind, probably, you know, based on their, their accomplishments, probably the greatest team of all time. Now, you definitely have to throw in Kevin Martin into that list. There's no question about that. And, um, you know, and there's some other players, too. I mean, I'd put uh, Mark Kennedy in that list, and I, I would uh, I would definitely put John Morse in that list. I mean, look at all the things he's done, too, right? So I'd, I would, without question, put him in the list of two-time world cha- or junior world champion and world champion and two-time Olympic champion. Like, how do you not put him in that list? Okay, well, and you're being modest because uh, you and a couple guys you played with could probably be in that discussion as well. <laughs> I'll throw, I'll throw well, you one. <laughs> no, I, I, I disagree a little bit only because we didn't get an Olympic title. And so I, I think we had periods of time where we were, in my mind, the best team in the world. But to say that we were, you know, in that group of top three, I think you have to have an Olympic title in there. Okay, we got a trade story and a boxer to keep an eye on. Best of Inside Sports on 6.30 Chet. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Edmonton Sports Leader, 6.30 Chet. Boxer McKenna Tansley, I want you to... Remember that name. Had her on Inside Sports a couple of weeks ago. 
pretty exciting career update from her. Yeah, yeah. Last Friday I fought. Um, so I fought for the NABF, which is the North American title under the WBC, and then the WBA Continental America titles, and I came out victorious, so I'm now the champ with both of those. Okay, so uh, two belts. How did the fight go? Was it a decision? Did you knock out your opponent? What happened? Yeah, it was a decision. It went all eight rounds. I was fighting a tough Mexican fighter. It was it was a great fight. It was super action-packed the whole time from start to finish. It was definitely a crowd favorite. So it was um, a well-fought fight. I, I won a pretty pretty heavy um, advantage unanimous decision. So where was it again? It was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Okay. Oh, so how come it was... Uh is, it, is, is that just how things got to put put together? Was there some tie for you or her to fight there? What's the story? Um, so I'm actually training down in Pennsylvania now. So um, that's kind of where I'm positioned up. I'm about an hour outside of Bethlehem in a town called Reading. So about an hour outside of Philadelphia. Okay. And how come you went there to train? You know, it's just... Um, it's a really action-packed area. I mean, you're just outside Philadelphia. Philly is boxing, so there's a ton of different fighters there. There's a ton of experience and everything. So just kind of looking to take everything to the next level as I um, push forward to try make it to the world title stage. Right on. Okay. And you're still relatively early in your career, right? Because we talked a couple of days ago. What is it, nine pro fights for you now? Yeah, I have nine pro fights. So I'm still pretty early on. And, you know, it's incredible because women's boxing She's on such the horizon right now. And this fight, I mean, before this fight, I was ranked number seven in the world with the WBA. So I'm hoping that I'll crack top five after this fight. Uh, sorry, what weight class are you again? Bantamweight, so 118 pounds. Okay, so bantamweight. So, well, I was going to ask you that. So you're hoping to move up in the rankings here. Uh, I, I don't know if you have something lined up. But when you win, you know, when you, when you take a significant step like you did, do, do you start getting calls immediately for the next one, or does that give you a little bit more cachet to start arranging things from your camp? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, you know, right now we're looking to build up a little bit, so we'd like to get a little bit more experience under our belts. Um, you know, we're starting to look at what our next options are, but we're really hoping within the next year that we'll challenge for one of the four main world titles. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Uh, and, of course, uh, what, what was your neighborhood here in Edmonton? Um, I'm from Sherwood Park. Or Sherwood Park. Oh, see, now everybody in Sherwood Park hates me. <laughs> no, that's all good. <laughs> all right, so you grew up in Sherwood Park. And when did, when did you seriously, remind me of your story here, because it is pretty cool. When did you seriously start pursuing boxing? How long ago? I didn't start boxing until I was 24, actually. Yeah, well, so that's incredible. I've been yeah, so I've been doing it for about six and a half years now. Um, I did three years amateur, and now I'm about three and a half in the pro so far. Yeah, okay. Uh, so how, look, as much as we follow, uh, you know, the, the big-time sports, you know, NHL in Edmonton is obviously the biggest sport, most athletes who are even doing a sport professionally 
you know, the, the, the riches and the fame aren't necessarily there, right? So are you able to, to box full-time? Do you still have to work? Like, how, how does it, do you have a sponsor? I'm just curious, because you know, it's, it's a lot of dedication, and it's a lot of grunt work, I guess, right, to, to move up. Totally, totally, yeah, no, and it's definitely a slow climb, and especially for women. I mean, women are starting to make significantly more in the sport where it becomes realistic. I have a full-time job outside of it, so I'm the creative director at a company called Urge Solutions. Um, so I do run our entire marketing division, um, which is awesome. And it allows me the flexibility to kind of get the training in and um, work at the same time. Okay, so you're able to work remotely while you're in Pennsylvania? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I do everything remotely. Yeah, well, that's that's amazing. So you're incredibly dedicated. Um, yeah. Uh, now, this past week, do you are you totally in rest and recover mode? Did you do any sort of training or anything athletic, you know, the week or two after a fight? You know, this week I'm just in relaxation mode, kind of let my body recover. I've had two fights in the last month. So four weeks before this one, I went down to the Dominican Republic and fought. So it's definitely been a pretty packed um, six weeks for me between training and fighting twice. So I'll take a week and then we're looking to be really active this year. I mean, we're hoping to at least get, you know, somewhere between seven to ten fights, I think, is what we're aiming for. So wow. I'll take a week and then I'll, I'll go right back into fight camp. So I'm in Victoria right now just seeing some friends and family. And then um, in about a week, I'll head back down to the States for, for my next training camp. Well, that is, I, I didn't realize you just fought four weeks before this one. That's intense. Wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I guess you got to push, right? You got to win. You got to get noticed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it was, it's awesome to be able to fight this frequently and some big opportunities are coming. So when I head down to the States, I actually head down to Houston and um, to join the training camp with a uh, girl who fights for Golden Boy and has three three world titles right now. So, so uh, what do you say? You've been a pro about three years? Yeah, about three and a half now. So now that you've you've settled into it, how's the reality as compared to the hope or the expectation when you got into it? You know, <laughs> I don't even know if when I started boxing, this is what I really expected to have happen. It was just kind of a, I think this is fun to try and every time I get into the ring it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and it blows my expectations every time so I feel like I'm living a dream that most people you know this is this is what most people want to go for and it's insane to see that it just keeps getting bigger yeah well good for you I, I really appreciate that you came on the show especially as you're trying to sort of uh, like you said catch up with friends and family uh, in Victoria <laughs> no this I week. appreciate you having me out this week well I, I you know since I mentioned I you know, you know who first mentioned you to me was Gene Principe yeah you know what he, such a great guy honestly he always messages me before and after my fights and follows along my career so it's been incredible to have his support touch. Uh, you might have to bug me sometimes when you deserve some attention, but I, I, I'm glad you came on. And I just I just feel terrible that I asked you what neighborhood you were from and you're from Sherwood Park. Because I know Sherwood Park no, people, that's all people good. probably hate that, don't they? Oh. No, not at all. I don't. Honestly, I, I've spent so much time in the city too, so all of it. All right, that is McKenna Tansley. She's always welcome in Inside Sports for sure.
The NHL trade deadline, always significant. It was big for the Oilers. I mean, they got Matias Ekholm and Nick Bugstad. I was talking to Penguins analyst Phil Bork. He was traded by the New York Rangers at the deadline in 1994. I was with Eddie Olchek and Mike Hartman and uh, Joey Coaster, and we were all in the hotel room in Calgary. We were on a road trip, the trade deadline, so 1 o'clock in Calgary, 3 o'clock East Coast time for deadline, right? We have practice in the morning. We go back to the hotel. We have some lunch. We all go into Eddie Olchek's room, myself and, and Mike Hartman and the, and the crew, right? Because we all heard that one of us was going to get traded. So we're waiting by the phone. We're just, you know, yakking it up. And uh, one o'clock hits. Nothing. We're high-fiving each other, Reed. And all of a sudden, boom, the phone rings. And the old check answers the phone. He's like, oh, Neil? Hey, hey, Neil. Neil Smith, the gentleman in the range. Oh, Borky? Yeah, hold on. Borky's right here. Gives me the phone. I just go, where am I going, Neil? He's like, hey, Borky, uh, it's Neil. Um, we just, uh, just want to let you know that we just traded you to the uh, Ottawa Senators. Uh, your flight leaves in an hour and a half. Um, um, downstairs, the car is going to be waiting for you. I want to thank you for your service. I go, stop, Neil. Stop. You go, Ottawa? F in Ottawa, Neil? At the time, Ottawa was dead last in the league. The Rangers were number one in the National Hockey League. I knew they were going to win the Cup that year. And I wasn't playing much, but I thought maybe I would get in in the playoffs. My, my agent called me about a month before the deadline. He goes, I got three or four teams really interested in you if you want me to push for a trade. I go, no, no, no. My agent was Ron Seltzer. I go, Ronnie, they're going to win the Cup here. I want to be a part of it. He goes, okay, I'll just be quiet. Let's see how it plays out. So I ended up getting traded from the New York Rangers, which were in the penthouse, to the Ottawa Senators at the time were in the outhouse. And that was a very, very humbling moment for me. Uh, well, thank you for being honest. I'm sorry uh, I made you share kind of a painful. Was it four futures you got traded? I think it was um, two bags of used practice bucks. Okay, well, two's more than one, right? Yeah, correct. we got to put a positive spin on it. Okay, well, <laughs> thanks for that story, which you had not told me before. But, uh, yeah, because I was kind of like... I was looking back, and I was like, I, I don't totally remember that, so I was like, I better ask him what happened. I, I appreciate that. Just real, real quick, I'll give, you, I'll give you the full exposure here, too. So I also said, I said, oh, thanks a lot, Neil, because my wife, I was married at the time, and our, our marriage wasn't great. She was from Southern California, and so to go to New York was, she wasn't crazy about it, to be quite honest about it. So I said, Ottawa? I go, Blank and other one, Neil, I said, I'm as good as divorce. He's like, Borky, I can't control, you know, what's going on with your marriage and all that. I said, I'm telling you right now, Neil, I'm as good as divorce. That was, uh, what, February or March? By January of the next year, I was divorced. Now, that man can tell a story. He never disappoints whenever he joins us here on Inside Sports. Okay, appreciate you tuning in tonight. Yeah, the Oilers news today. Derek Ryan is the team nominee for the Masterton Trophy. And the Oilers tomorrow right here on 6.30, Chad. 6 o'clock for the face-off show game at 7.30. And don't forget, Oilers now with Bob Stoffer from noon to 2. My name's Reed. Thanks for listening.